Wow, did you hear the reading? If you weren't intrigued and interested before, I hope you are now. You can't help but read that and think there's an elephant in the room and uh, an issue that we need to engage with. It is one of those passages that does confront our culture and it is uh, one that triggers concerns, actually. Uh, I don't mean to make light of it. It does raise, uh, not inappropriately, actually, fears and concerns uh, as people reflect on what does that mean? What is God saying uh, to women, particularly in this context? Very important passage. In fact, uh, if we were together... I think uh, I would be getting those looks around as people are wondering whether I'd escape alive from this time. So let me, uh, let me pray and wrestle with this word of God together. I'll explain what I'll be doing in a moment, but let me pray first. Heavenly Father, we do ask please that you might give us wisdom this morning. Help us please uh, wrestle well with the words that you have given us. Help us come to it with hearts that are humble before you. Help us please, grant us please, understanding and insight. And we ask this, that we might please you and live lives that uh, are lives that work in our world well. Amen. Well, I, want, uh, I do want to get to that part of the scriptures we've just had read uh, about women and church there. But I do want to say, uh, as big as it is as we read it, it's not the big thing in the passage. Uh, there are a number of other issues that are deeply important through here. It is big culturally, but it's only one piece. It's only a few verses. And I want us to see the larger frame first. I'm going to start at verse 26 and take us down through the text and move towards that particular passage, uh, verse 34, about women. Uh, and my expectation is that as we deal with the issues on the way through, and let me, as we deal with those, when we get to the more troubling verse at the end there, we'll have much more to say about it that I think will be helpful and important. But let me say, the issues that are large on the way through the passage, this, this actually brings us to understand what church is, what church is for, and more deeply, what's freedom? What is true Christian freedom? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, there's no word freedom used through this passage. But I trust as we go through that that will emerge as a very significant issue and will set us up to actually think properly about what Paul is talking about to men and women in this passage. So let's jump straight in there, verse 26, and work our way through this text. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. There's the first verse of this kind of closing section on two, three chapters that Paul has been working through, talking about what it is to be spiritual. And notice this, what shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together? Now, he has much to say about what you do when you come together, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I just want you to notice there's an assumption buried in this text that needs to be drawn out given our current context. When you come together. The word is actually assembly together. And it's a hugely important context because the assumption that Paul has as he gives us instructions about the things that you bring is that you'll be in a room together doing it. You will have assembled. Because assembly, physical assembly, is at the heart of what church is. In fact, the word church, the word church itself is the word ecclesia in Greek and it just means assembly, it just means gathering. Now this has some relevance for us at the moment, Yes. What we are doing at this point 
watching the stream of someone in a building through a camera is not church. It's possible to say it approximates church. It's the best we can do at the present, given the health concerns and needs, but it isn't doing church. Now, I make this point because although it's not the main point of the passage, and we'll come to that in a moment, uh, it is the assumption of the verse, and it's hugely relevant for us, particularly at this time. There is something deeply profound about doing church physically that I want us to keep appreciating. And it's not the deeply profound thing of just having friends around and people you can actually speak to. It's something far more deeper than that. You see, at the centre of the Christian faith is the message of the gospel. It's the message that God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in the son, in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, in his death and resurrection, whoever puts their faith in his works and not their own, will be saved, will be reconciled back to God. We'll have their sins forgiven, will be um, restored into relationship with the God of the universe. It's an extraordinary gospel message. And if that's news to you, I want to encourage you again that, as Jess said, next Sunday, we're going to hit chapter 15, a passage that goes straight to the very heart of the gospel message. It gives you what Jesus did, why he did it, what the resurrection's about, the evidences for the resurrection. It's the most wonderful part of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So make sure you tune in next week and make sure you get as many people as you can to link or come with you to watch. But that isn't all that God's doing in the gospel. He is, in essence, at heart, reconciling us to himself, but he's also reconciling us to each other. The very core thing he is doing is undoing the effects of sin, undoing the effects of our rebellion against him in our relationship with him and our relationships with each other. He is bringing men and women from every tribe, nation, tongue, ethnicity, race, is bringing them back together under him to be one people again. He is working to eradicate racism where there'll be equality of men and women equally sharing in the salvation that he's established through Christ. God's purpose is in Jesus to reconcile us to himself and to each other. And that is a powerful thing to appreciate, particularly at this time. The Christian message is the one place that you can truly find the resources to combat racism. Because the fact is, when church physically gathers, when people from different tribes, nations, tongues, subcultures, ethnicities get together physically in one place and stand shoulder to shoulder and declare that Jesus is our Lord together, it says something powerful to the world. Actually, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it says something powerful to the universe, that the cross has conquered sin, that the cross has undone the effects of sin in our world. You know, you want to do something after this most terrible set of circumstances this last couple of weeks, how do we undo racism in our world? There's much that needs to be done socially in the justice and so on. But let me offer this. One of the key pieces to undo and, and pull the, 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 the foundations out from under racism, one of the key things you can do is preach the gospel. Go to church. Be together with people who share in common the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ 
from the God who made all races one and is saving all nations back together to be one. Be part of what God is doing through the gospel. Now, you can't get any of this in your lounge room watching a stream. I mean, you, you, you know, you can gain from the, the singing, the insights, the instructions and so on. You can gain from all of that, but you can't do church in your lounge room like we are. You can't do that thing that says tangibly and physically that we stand together for Christ watching in your own lounge room. In fact, the danger of streaming is that it can reinforce the Christian life as a private thing, as a thing merely between me and God. It was never meant to be a private thing merely between you and God. God's purpose always is that it be a together thing, that he is building a new body, a new community. And so pray, pray that God would not only heal this world of this virus, but that he would bring us back together again, that we might be able to gather and declare to the world again by our mere presence together that he is undoing the divisions that exist. So verse 26, we've only gone a few words. When you gather, when you assemble, this is the expectation of what church is, but to the main point. What's the main point? Well, the main point is at the end of verse 26, everything must done, be done so that the church may be built up. The main point of this section is that the church is for something. It's for a very practical purpose. It was established by God so that Christians might be built up. It was established by God because his very purpose is to gather people from all the nations to be together under Christ. But he established it in this time to be a visible place where we might be strengthened and built up. Now you read verse 26 with me again. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Now notice the flow. He gives a list of five things that you bring, a person brings to church, a hymn, instruction, revelation, tongue, interpretation. But the sentence is not about those five things. Take some care here. Those things are just the detail. They're the hypothetical possibilities of what you might do when you come together. It's not the run sheet of what church must do to be a proper church, these five things. This isn't Paul commanding that these must happen. Now, there's a few reasons that tell you that that's the case. One is, firstly, it's a very inadequate list. If that's the five things you must do, how come there's no mention of Bible reading, which he says in 1 Timothy 4, you must do. He commands Timothy to read the Bible publicly. But there's no mention of this here. This is an inadequate list if it's meant to be a list. Uh, the language itself is not ought, it's is. When you come, you have, you have, you have these various things. And the context tells you this is not a list of what you must do in church. The, the context tells you this is his final summary of the larger point that he's been making. And what's the larger point that he's been making? Well, if you've been with us since chapter 12, Paul has been saying to the Corinthians that the gifts that you've been given are not for your own benefit. 
God did not give you gifts so that you might feel better about yourself, that you might be self-fulfilled, that you might be self-satisfied, that you might have prestige and significance. He's not giving you the gifts for those reasons, but chapter 12, verse 7, he's given them to you for the common good. And then he gives us the whole chapter, chapter 13 on love, the most excellent way to help reorientate the Corinthians and us that life actually isn't to be lived for ourselves, it's to be lived under love for the sake of others. And so you are to desire, chapter 14, you are to desire those gifts that actually better serve others, not yourself. And he compares just two, prophecy and tongues. There are other gifts, but this is particularly the issue. He compares these two and says of those two, tongues is the lesser, prophecy is the greater. Because prophecy is the one that, verse 3, edifies other people. It's interesting through verse 3, you get the language there of strengthening. Um, it is the language of edification, building up. It's the word he uses all the way through this chapter. He uses it again at verse 5. Uh, our translation says that the church may be edified, but it's the same Greek word, that they might be strengthened, built up. You get it again in verse 12. The language there is that the church might be built up, but it's the same word, edification, strengthened. And then again, verse 17, the same word, but different English words used to translate it. And then verse 26. You see, you come to verse 26 and Paul says, what then shall we say in light of all of this theology and thinking and instruction about what life is about, what the gifts are about? What shall we say? Well, when you come, you bring various gifts. Don't get caught up on the gifts that you bring, but you bring various gifts. And he says, finally, at the end of verse 26, everything must be done so that the church may be built up, edified, strengthened. That's the point. Let me give you two quick things on this. God thinks it matters that we are built up as Christians. God is deeply concerned that we are strengthened as Christians, that we don't just drift, that we don't just settle for minimum effective Christian living, that we don't just hit cruise control. The whole purpose of God giving gifts by the work of the Spirit and the power of the risen Jesus, Ephesians chapter 4, is that we, his people, might grow. Actually, that we might be kept and grow. Don't underestimate our need of this. You see, we live at a particular time in history, and I don't mean the period of COVID, I mean a particular larger time of history between the first coming of Jesus and his final return. And that is a long period of history. The Lord Jesus came to save us and win us to himself and to each other that we might be part with him of a new creation. He wants to take us home where we'll be free. But for now, he has left us here. And he has left us in the midst of a world of sin. Galatians chapter 1, this present evil age. A world where there is demonic powers and satanic forces at war with us. A war world where Satan is a roaring lion seeking to undo. Now, why has he left us here? Well, he's left us here in this dreadfully combative and battlefield situation because there are more people to be saved. But appreciating that we are in this context, 
reminds us that we live in dangerous times. We are away from home. We are living in an age that is hostile to the things of Christ. Don't underestimate your need, my need, to be strengthened. Sin is deceptive. Sin is the deceit that deceives us into thinking that we don't need to be strengthened. That I'll always have my Christian faith and it'll all be well. God has given gifts to the people of his church that they might gather together to strengthen one another. This is how great our need is. It matters, church matters. The second thing to say, one thing is crucial in growing us and keeping us and building us and it is God's word. This is to pick up what we looked at in the earlier part of chapter 14. It's the deep assumption that operates through all that Paul is writing. Uh, the, the fact is that Paul is bringing to the attention of the Corinthians that what they desperately need is to be built up and strengthened. God has gifted the church to enable that to happen. But the key to being built up and strengthened is words. Words that engage our minds. Words that mean our mind is fruitful. Verse 15, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with understanding. I'll sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how will someone now put in the position of an inquirer say, amen to your thanksgiving? Because they don't know what you're saying. Look at verse 19. I would rather speak five intelligible words in church to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul is deeply concerned that the Christian community be built up. We need to be built up in this particular context. We need each other to be strengthened. It's desperately important. But the key to being strengthened is not just any activity that makes you feel better. The key to being strengthened is words, God's words, words that instruct. This is reinforced by Paul's comments uh, about tongues uh, and prophecy. You look there in verse 27 now. You see, it comes after the end of verse 26. Everything must be done so the church might be edified, strengthened, built up. That's the word. Verse 27, you see, if, if someone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak and one at a time and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker must keep quiet in the church. He must be, literally, the Greek is silent. Why? Because the important thing in church is that things are done to strengthen the faith of people. And the key to strengthening the faith of people is not just the phenomena of spiritual acts. The key to strengthening the faith of a believer is not just seeing someone speak in tongues. It's not just having healings happen. Well, that might lead someone to feel that they're strengthened, but Paul says that's inadequate. What you need to be truly strengthened, to be built up, edified, are words. Words that you can engage and think about, that your mind, my mind might be fruitful. This is the key. 
It's reinforced too by the prophecy, the language of prophecy, verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. You can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Just notice a couple of things here. Uh, prophecy, um, only it's to be limited. As good as it is, it's to be limited. Two or three at the most. In turn. And these words, verse 29, should be weighed up. They're not authoritative. They're not like Old Testament prophecy. They're not like, thus says the Lord. There's, Here's what I think the Lord might be saying. And it needs to be weighed. But notice the outcome of the prophetic ministry. It is... Verse 31, that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Which is an insight into prophecy again, isn't it? What is prophecy? We talked about this a little bit last week, but what is prophecy? Prophecy, it's not just any act of future telling. It's, just not, a, it's not just fortune telling and, and saying lovely things. The essence of prophecy is that it will bring about the activity, but it will bring about the outcome of the believers, the Christian community being instructed, built up. You can see that back in verse 3. They speak to, their peop to the people for their strengthening, their edification, their building up, their encouragement and comfort. This is why many have regarded uh, certain kinds of preaching to be prophetic the application of God's word into the lives of God's people for their instruction, edification, strengthening and comfort is the activity of prophecy. You know, I started uh, by showing, saying that church is a physical gathering and then drawing attention to what church is for. Uh, what is it for? Well, what it's for is the building up of believers. This is preeminently the purpose of church, the physical gathering, the assembly of God's people is preeminently for edification. Verse 26, everything is to be done so the church may be built up. Let me just apply this again for a moment. Church is not preeminently about entertainment. It's not preeminently about enjoyment. It's not even about worship. As shocking as that is to say. Church might often be enjoyable, and it's lovely when it is. I find it enjoyable. Church very often will be um, engaging, and it will always be an act of worship. To gather as God's people and hear the word of God and respond in faith is an act of worship. To sing praises to one another and to our God, singing the words of God together is an act of worship. Church will be an act of worship, but you don't come to church to worship. You come to church to be edified. That's the essence of what church is. It declares to the universe that the victory of Christ has been established in gathering men and women from all nations, tribes, tongues, languages to be together in Christ. It's an event that brings him great pleasure as we together celebrate the gospel of Christ and sit under his word, being edified and strengthened, that's an act that worships God. Now Paul has taken two chapters to get to this point, two and a half chapters. It really matters that we understand what church is for. But now he adds something new, 
And it's there in verse 33. He adds a further principle for the church. He says there's a new principle that needs to govern all that is done in church. The principle of edification needs to govern all that's done, that all be done to grow and mature believers around the word of God. That's the big principle that underlies all of this. But he adds this new principle. And it's the principle there, verse 33, of order. Now, this moves us one step closer to the very controversial section about women. But it's the principle of order. Verse 33, God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. And so as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, there's to be this practice of ordering the behaviour of the tongue speakers and the prophets, they're to be silent at certain times and what have you. Order. Now, it is a new thought that Paul brings, but it's interconnected with all he's been saying. If genuine Christian growth happens through a thoughtful engagement with words from God, where my mind is fruitful and thoughtful, if that's how growth happens then that that word comes in an orderly way is critical to me being able to understand. Make sense? If, two or three, if prophets are going to speak, then two or three at most and one at a time. If tongues is going to happen, then it can only happen with interpretation because otherwise people's minds will be unfruitful and the key to fruitfulness is the word being understood and they can't all speak at once. There needs to be order. Now this is just simple practicalities at one level. If someone speaks in tongues and someone else speaks in tongues and there's no interpretation, they're all speaking together different words, you can't understand what's being said. Edification's not happening. Now, a sense of excitement might be happening, but that's not the same as edification. If people are running around the room and shouting and jumping up and down and screaming, and if all of that's happening in the context of spontaneous chaos, then that is not the proper place for an ability to reflect, think, heed instruction, sing together the word of God to deepen our appreciation... That's not that context. And so Paul says, verse 33, order needs to shape the life of God's people. In fact, so important is this that he says in verse 40, as a summary, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, there's just a practicality with this. But Paul goes much further than just the practicality of it. He says in verse 33 that order matters, not just because of the practicality of being able to understand and so on, but order matters because God is a God of order. It's because of who God is that order in church life matters. He is a God not of disorder, but of peace. Now, something here is being said deeply about the state of reality. God has made us with minds, use them. But he has made us in his image, the image of God, who is a God of order. 
appreciate that order matters in our lives. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, the Godhead, have an order to their relationship. He made us in an orderly way. God brings order into his world as one of his great blessings. Now, as you roll this thinking down and reflect on it further, the, the implications are massive. You see, think with me. Think with me. What is at the heart of a challenge to bring order in a community of people? If I'm going to bring order to a community of people, what, what is at heart something that I need to bring to that community of people? Let me give you what I think it is. The restraint of freedom. The restraint of freedom. Two or three, no more. One at a time. You can't just speak when you want to speak. You need to, Paul says, he says to the this, this tongue speaker, you need to be silent. It's exactly, it is the Greek word for silence, verse 28, not just the Greek word for keep quiet. It's be silent. He says that the prophets, you need to be silent. Um, you, you need to stop, verse 30, stop talking. You should stop, be silent. You need to restrain your freedoms. You see, the essence of being orderly means not doing what you want to do when you want to do it. Fundamental to order in a community is that we don't do what we want to do when we, don't, when we want to do it. This means there can't be absolute, complete spontaneity in church life. There needs to be order, restraint and so peace. Which leads to some deeper thought on the issue of freedom. I promised as we began we'd get here, let me now get there. You see, what is freedom? One of the great blessings of the Christian message is that it brings us freedom. It is for freedom, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, that Christ has set us free. If the Son sets you free, John's Gospel says, you'll be free indeed. The Gospel is about freedom. It's freedom from death. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from the law. But, it's not freedom to do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. It's not freedom to be whoever you want to be. The gospel freedom is a richer kind of freedom. It's a deep and profound kind of freedom which we need to reflect on. It's the, here it is, it's the freedom to be truly who you were made to be. God sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place, the most gruesome of deaths, to pay our penalty, to rise again to new life, that he might, might rescue us from slavery, to free us. But to free us for what? To be the people he made us to be. To be the people of glory. To be the most glorious people. And what is it to be the most glorious? It is not to be a great sportsman. It is not to be a great academic. It's, it's not to be um, 
a great traveller. What makes a human their most glorious? To be a person of love. To be a per- This is the most excellent way, chapter 13. To be someone who lives for the good of others. That's the glory of God. He is love. And He has set us free from sin, which keeps consuming us with ourselves and making us want to live for ourselves. He frees us from sin. He frees us to be what He made us to be, the glorious children of God who live lives of love. The most glorious thing to do and be is to be someone who restrains your impulses, who no longer pursues your own needs and your own wants for the sake of loving others, who is determined to do and say not what you want to do and say, but to do and say what will be most helpful for others. Now, I understand that culturally, in our day and age, this is a radical thought, as the rest of the chapter is, we'll get to in a second. It's a radical thought, but it's a wonderful insight. We are today, in our culture, obsessed with freedom. But for us, freedom is this very pale thing. It's this very superficial thing. It's, a, it's the freedom to be and do whatever I want, to have no restraints. It's about being authentic, So authenticity has become this concept where I'm determined to be truly authentic is to be who I am and not let you stop me. To not let anyone intrude on who I am. But where that's become an absolute value, it's become the greatest of evils. Because it's built in a, a belief that to be who you are and what you want is the greatest value. No. The greatest value is love. What the world is pursuing, what the world is taking us down the path of is the very opposite of true freedom, the most glorious kind of freedom. The freedom to be a person who no longer lives for themselves, but lives for him who died for us and for others out of devotion to him. Who chooses to only do that which will help others. Who chooses the way of love. Freedom is in the gospel, but it's a freedom to hold yourself back. Now, it is an interesting way to think about freedom, but it is true freedom. You see, the person who has to speak, has to be themselves, has to shoot off their mouth, who has to speak their mind, is not a person of love, but a person enslaved to their own passions. The gospel gives freedom. It gives the power to be free from your own personal needs because, and here's the beauty of it, it lifts you up. It gives you your worth and dignity in Christ. It gives you your identity and your value in Christ. You don't need to fight for it. You don't need to earn your merit, your value, your worth. God has given it to you as a gift. And because he has given it to you as a gift, your dignity and worth are in Jesus, your identity is in Jesus, man and woman, your dignity is in Jesus. You don't have to fight for it. 
You don't have to seek to express it at every turn. You are truly free from a place of being filled up to be a person of love. The most glorious thing a person can be. You are free to say what might need to be said or free to restrain speaking for the sake of others. You are free to submit to someone. You're free to lead someone, whichever is most helpful and loving and most honouring to God. You don't have to prove yourself as a man or a woman. Your dignity, worth and value is in Christ. And so, we come now to that passage, verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. What do we say about these verses? Well, with all that's come before it, there's much to be said. Let me give you... I think three things, four things. Let me give you the first one. Don't measure these words about women by the current cultural rule that says any restraint on someone's freedom is necessarily evil. That cultural rule fails to see the deeper truth about freedom where freedom is actually the freedom to consider what is most loving and honourable to God, what is most loving and honourable for others. It is the freedom to be silent. Notice this. The woman is not the only person commanded to be silent in this chapter. And I think it's unfortunate that our English translations have used different words to translate the same Greek word. As I mentioned on the way through, uh, the tongue speakers are told, verse 28, not to keep quiet but to be silent. The prophets uh, are told, verse 30, not just to stop speaking but to be silent. So that when you come to verse 36, verse 34, and the woman is told to remain silent, it's only one mention of silence in a number. You know, when Paul speaks this way, he is not saying to women as, to be silent as if it's a new thing. His point is that there are times for the sake of others, out of love and a grasp of order, that various speakers need to be silent. This is not male chauvinism. Second, these verses are not a devaluing of the woman. The prophet was commanded to be silent, not because their gift was any less significant. Paul says it's the greater gift, and yet they are commanded to be silent. This is not a devaluing of the one with the gift or the woman. It's not that kind. This is, this is not how Paul thinks. If you've been reading through the Apostles' letter, as we did earlier uh, last year, you'll know that Paul in chapter 11, just a few chapters earlier, calls women the glory of man. <laughs> what is the greatest a man can be, says the Apostle Paul? Woman. I love it. Introduce my wife as my glory. She is the greatest a man can be. This is the Apostle Paul. 
In Romans chapter 16, he gives a great long list of people that he thanks and sends greetings to for their hard work and, and so many of those greetings go to women who have partnered him in the gospel work, who have laboured hard, that he honours. And chapter 11 of this same book, he calls on them to be prophets in the church, to do the work that is the greater work of a prophecy. This is not Paul devaluing women. This is not something about a woman that's bad. That's the caricature that the world wants you to believe of what the Bible says. It's a terrible misunderstanding. It's not devaluing at all. Let me give you the third thing. And I think this is probably the big one for us. The silence is not absolute. He says women, sh women should remain silent. But a few chapters earlier, he's told us in chapter 11 that women are to pray in church and prophesy in church. They are to speak in church, in the public assembly. They're to do that most great work of prophecy in the church speaking to people for their edification, strengthening, encouragement. And so this perhaps is the key point. The silence that Paul's commanding here in verse 34 is not an absolute silence, never speak at all. Chapter 11 tells you it can't be that. It's rather the silence in the context of verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what's said. The silence that's commanded is in the context, I take it, of weighing carefully the prophetic word. It's not an absolute command, given what he says elsewhere. Now, why might Paul say in that context, the woman is to be silent? I'd offer a couple of reasons. The first is it seems that that activity of weighing the prophetic word is emerging in this stage of church history as an eldership activity. It is the activity of determining which words will apply to God's people and lay upon the conscience of God's people. And secondly, I take it, Paul is concerned about the order of relationship between the husband and wife in the public assembly. That's why verse 35, uh, the law says in 35, husband at home. I think Paul seems concerned that the husband and wife relate and express themselves in the public assembly in a way that's healthy, that maintains the order of their relationship and the good order of the community and its relationship, that they both reflect the reality that they are created male and female, which takes us back to chapter 11, where Paul does talk about the order of relationship between men and women. And he commands there for men and women to both participate in prayer and prophecy, but to do it recognising their differences. To honour the fact that there is manhood and womanhood. Paul says this is serious. He in fact says it is, verse 37, the command of the Lord. He uses very strong language. Now, I'm aware in all of this, that these things do really shake people. In our society, in our day and age, to suggest that there any, is any difference between men and women is one of those topics that causes people to simply switch off. I do want to offer that though it is at odds with popular culture, what the Bible says at this point, 
It's important to note that the Christian faith and the person of Jesus aren't trying to be popular. They aren't trying to fit in with what most people would like to have said. The Lord Jesus comes to every culture, every different culture, to abusive cultures and it says, you are wrong, stop. Husbands, love your wives, lay down your lives for your wives, don't ever abuse your wife. It says to cultures where there's a complete disintegration of any order and loving freedom of relationship between the two, that no, no, God intends there to be an order. It speaks to every culture in a word that challenges and confronts. And it says to all of us to come out from our cultures and be different. The world and its culture are a product of the fall. Popular wisdom that is part of our world's culture looks good like the fruit in the garden looked good. But don't sell your soul for its wisdom. Look at where the world is today. Wow. Our world is more divided than it has been for many decades. What is happening? It's racism, but it's all kinds of expressions of unrestrained freedom, identity issues that are dismantling the way we live and relate with each other, all driven by the wisdom of the world that thinks this is the best way to function and live life together. Does the world really have the answers? You know, there is a deeper beauty to the biblical frame, to the biblical life. It's the beauty of true freedom. The freedom to be a person of love. The freedom to be a person who has been so invested with dignity, men and women, invested with glory and dignity and beauty and, and value, so invested with those things. She is the glory of man. To be so invested with those things that out of a heart that's full, you can choose a freedom that brings restraint for the sake of honouring God and loving others. There's a strength in this that is the power of the Christian message. It's driven not by fear, but by love, the most excellent way. All of which shapes church culture. All of which shapes the way we gather where we come together to be instructed that our minds might be transformed from the ways of the world, to think God's thought, to bring the mind of Christ, to be edified and grow, that we might live lives that do please and honour him while we wait for his return. Church is powerful and the word of God is at the very heart of it. Let's pray we heed it well. Let me pray for us. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do acknowledge that it's difficult at times. That we come to it from many different places and contexts. We come to it from all kinds of different cultural shapings. From places of hurt, actually, and, and abuse. And, and from places of pride, from different places. And Father, we ask today that you might meet us where we're at. That you might lift us up in Christ. And give us a great sense of the dignity and worth and value and strength that you've given us in Jesus. 
that you love us with an eternal love and you have set us free. But you have set us free to be people of love. Let that mark our church life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.